We are in Revelation 15. Tonight we begin the uh, look at the seven bowl judgments. We'll be looking at the first part of the seven bowl judgments. And hopefully, Lord willing, we will get through the first five bowl judgments tonight. That's, that's the prayer, that's the plan. Now in your study notes there, uh, as you look you can see that we have come to this, the fourth of these repeating cycles in the letter of Revelation. And each of these cycles uh, intensifies and escalates in its imagery. Uh, the nature of God's judgment becomes more severe and clear as these cycles progress through the letter. The final cycle we will see will be uh, the cycle portrayed and referred to as the thousand years or millennial in chapter 20, which is another picture of a, a full cycle from inauguration to consummation of Christ's kingdom. And then the seventh and final picture we will get out of the revelation themselves is the new heaven and new earth, the consummation, the completion. Number seven, we shouldn't be shocked by that. In these cycles, just a refresher, the Spirit reveals the course, the character, and the consummation of Jesus' reign from different vantage points. So we get the course, that is, what is it going to look like throughout His reign, the character, uh, how will that reign be acted out both in protection over the saints and in judgment on the world? And then lastly, the consummation. What will it look like when he returns to consummate that reign? And all of these cycles are given for the purpose of giving hope to persecuted Christians regarding the absolute sovereignty and triumph of the Lamb, Jesus. That they can be sure no matter how difficult things may look and how hard things may be, Christ reigns. He rules and He's going to return and He sees everything that they are enduring for His name's sake. It does not go unnoticed by the Lord and they can take heart in that great encouragement. Now as we get to the bold judgment, which is the final of these kind of seven sets of judgments that are portrayed throughout, right? We saw the seven seals. We saw the seven trumpets. We were briefly introduced, but not told anything about the seven thunders. And now we get the seven bowls. So four sets of seven judges. We're actually going to see where that comes from a little bit later. But this is the final of those sevenfold judgments. It is the most um, detailed. It is also the, the most um, terrifying in its scope and universal in its scope. And once again, that's for the nature of the letter as it escalates and escalates throughout. Where the seven seal judgments identify those who are under the judgment of God, the trumpet judgment served as a warning to those who reject God, and the bowl judgments are the picture that this is the full consummation of God's wrath. There, this is not a warning anymore. This is not merely an identification of who will receive it. But this will be the fullness of God's wrath seen in the nature of these judgments on the nations. And just like the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and now the bowl judgments, the first five of them mark out pictures of repeating judgments that happen on mankind from Christ's inauguration when he first came and established his kingdom to when he returns. So these judgments are things that have happened to kingdoms and nations throughout the history of mankind since Christ first came. 
These are pictures of judgments that God is continuing to repeat on mankind for its wickedness. The sixth bowl judgment will bring us right to the consummation of history. And we'll look at that next week. And that will be the picture of the the final battle, the last battle, which we've already seen multiple pictures of throughout. And then the seventh will be the judgment, the final judgment uh, on those, on wickedness, on the, the wicked of the world, on unbelief. And so it takes us from the beginning of Christ's reign and what it will look like, God's judgment on wickedness throughout the world, all the way up to the very last of days to the actual consummation and final judgment when Christ returns. And so tonight we'll look at the first five. These pictures of what I call the temporal judgments of God that mark out this present age, the wickedness of the present age and what God pours out upon that wickedness. And I think as we look through them and what they detail, I think it will be very clear Um, how these judgments have been at play throughout the history of mankind, especially uh, with the rise and reign of Christ. So with that being said, let's go ahead and turn to the text. Beginning in verse 5, remember this is picking up from verse 1. Verse 1 gave us that little introductory statement. And now verse 5 picks it back up, and we're going to read all the way through the 11th verse of chapter 16. After this, I looked... And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. And it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, It was allowed to scorch the people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. The fifth angel poured out His bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here we begin with this introduction, looking first at verses 5 through 8 of chapter 15. Kind of this closing introduction. We once again get a glimpse of what was introduced to us back in verse 1. First we see that I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels, the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes 
around their chest. Right? So the first thing that we are given regarding these seven angels, which we have seen multiple times, these seven angels are the same angels of the churches, the same, uh, these, they, are, they are picturesque of the guardians which God has placed over his people. That's who these seven angels are. They are symbolic of God's protection over his people, and they enact the judgments of God uh, on behalf of his people. You see that more clearly throughout. And we're told that they come out of the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven. Now where does that, that tent of witness or literally the tent of testimony, as we read it, this is a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And the reason why Revelation is such an important book is because it gives us heavenly imagery that we don't get anywhere else. And what that heavenly imagery does for us is it tells us that the tabernacle on earth, the temple, were all designed after God's heavenly temple. That God structured the tabernacle and its layout and temple and its layout in order to match His heavenly temple. And when we get to the new heavens and new earth, we will see that He creates the new heaven and earth to be the tabernacle where He dwells forever. Why? Because heaven and earth will be one in that time. So we'll see that. It's fascinating. So I'll give you an example. It's Ezekiel 38, 21 this picture of the tabernacle of testimony, right? Uh, these are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, as they were recorded uh, at the commandments of Moses, the responsibility of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. And so the tabernacle is referred to as the tabernacle of testimony or the tent of witness. Why? Because it housed the testimony of the Lord, the law, right? It housed God's testimony. Listen to the way that Stephen describes it in Acts 7, Acts 7, 44. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. And what pattern was Moses given to see? Well, the heavenly pattern. That's the picture here. So the tent of witness, the tent of testimony, is a picture of uh, the tabernacle, that where God's revelation comes from. And so the angel which is coming to bring this truth to the seven angels, they are coming from the revelation of God. They are coming to bring God's revelation to the world, coming from the tent of testimony or the tent of witness. And they are coming to protect those who bear the testimony of Jesus Christ. We saw that back in Revelation 12, 17. So we've seen their location. They're coming from the inner sanctuary of heaven, coming forth with this judgment, this final revelation of God as it pertains to the judgment to be poured out on the nations. And notice now we see their appearance. Their appearance. It says that they were clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And now what makes this remarkable is there's, only other, there's really only two other places in Scripture where we see this kind of language. The most important one to our context is Revelation 1, where this is exactly how Jesus is described. Revelation 1, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The reason why I believe that these angelic beings 
are dressed and reflecting of Christ is it because it denotes on whose behalf they are acting on. They are acting on behalf of the Lamb who is bringing judgment on the nations. It's to denote where their judgment comes from. It doesn't come from themselves. It comes from the Lamb who is bringing forth, who is the judge of the earth. And so it is... The, these, the description is not making Jesus out to be an angel. It's telling us who's, on whose behalf these angels are acting. They are acting on his behalf to bring judgment against the wicked who brings persecution against his saints. Right? The other place where we see this picture of golden sash and white robes is in Ezekiel 28 when it refers to the high priest dressing. Right? And the picture is that in heaven... These angels have a priestly function, right? They, pre, they, they, they serve in the Holy of Holies around uh, the tabernacle for the Lord, going in and out on His behalf to serve as agents of the Lord towards His people. And so that's where you get this two-fold picture of their adornment. One, they are acting on behalf of the Lord, and their acting on behalf of the Lord is a picture of their priestly work in heaven. Now, it's, we, we see now what it is that they were holding, right? Verse 7, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Now, we've seen these four living creatures before. And these four living creatures are the ones who have within them the golden bowls of incense. You saw this in Revelation 5.8. And what was in those golden bowls of incense? The prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints. And so these four living creatures, the reason why they are called four is because they denote the fullness, the universal scope of God's people. And the reality that God hears universally the prayers of His people. These four living creatures are pictures of the angelic beings who bring forth, who gather the prayers of God's people and deliver them directly before Him, right? That's, that's the picture here, that God is hearing the universal cry of His people. And so what these four, this four living creature does now, just like we saw back in Revelation 6, as we went into the trumpet judgments, is what happens. One of these four living creatures in Revelation 8 pours out the bowl of the prayers of God's people onto the world and it brings forth judgment. In other words, the judgment that they are receiving, the bowls that they are receiving, is God replacing the prayers of God's people, how long, O Lord, and giving them a bowl of judgment to answer the prayers of His people. To actually bring judgment on the wickedness which has created the yearnings of His people. So there's this great exchange happening between the bowls as they bring forth the bowls of the prayers of God's people yearning and longing for redemption and for rescue and for relief from the wickedness of the world. God gives back as a response to their prayers bowls of wrath to pour out on the nations which bring harm and pain and suffering to them. I love this. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Every time, whether it was the seal judgments, whether it was the trumpet judgments, briefly the thunder judgments, which we weren't told anything about. We just know that they were there. 
And then lastly, these bowl judgments, every time they are initiated, it's one of the four living creatures bringing them and initiating them. In other words, these four sets of judgments are pictures of the universal judgment of God upon the wickedness of the world, which has brought harm upon his people. And it is a picture of the universal answer of God's prayers to his people. And the reason why you say, well, why four sets of seven? This actually has precedence in Scripture. There are four sets of seven judgments pronounced in Revelation. And I told you when we went over the thunder judgments that I believe the reason God kept those secret is just as that constant reminder, you don't know everything about what's to come. And God purposely makes it in such a way that you always live with a holy sense of wonder and mystery. That what will happen when he returns ultimately belongs solely to him. And to go beyond what he has revealed is to put yourself in great danger. But there are four sets of seven. Why? Because in Leviticus 26, God declares to Israel that if they fall into idolatry and lawlessness, he will pronounce upon them four sets of sevenfold judgments. That he will answer their sin sevenfold in judgment. And he pronounces it four times. Leviticus 26, 18. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. Leviticus 26, 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and still will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sin. Leviticus 26, 23 through 24. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Leviticus 26, 27, 28. But if in spite of this you will still not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. A fourfold pronouncement of a sevenfold sin. And how many fourfold announcements of, of seven judgments do we have in Revelation? Four. This is where it's coming from. And the picture here is, and, and I love the mercy and the grace that's in Leviticus 26. The picture is, is with every pronouncement of judgment, I will continue to escalate it. But what's the purpose? The purpose for those first three is that you'll turn That you'll repent. And those first three declarations of judgment for the hearer to read in Revelation is for the purpose that the world might turn and repent. But with the fourth fold, the picture is there is no repentance. Here's a picture of just what judgment's going to come for those who will continue in their rebellion. And we see from the fourth and fifth bowl that that's exactly what they'll do. They would not repent of their deeds. They will not repent of their deeds. Therefore, the judgment is final. That's also why we know that the first five bowls mark this present age. Why? Because within them, there's a chance to repent. If these are culminating judgments, there's not going to be any chance to repent, which was what we will see in the sixth bowl and the seventh bowl. It's just going to be done. The lines have been drawn. And the wrath will come fully. 
But in these first judgments, they are temporal judgments and that they are judgments that are marked upon the wicked of the world, but they are not ultimate in that these judgments do not bring the final end of man. They serve as means of mercy to turn, but we will see the hardness of sin which will keep them from doing so. They will not repent of their deeds. This, you see these connections and this is why they're there. And then finally, we see this closing picture of the sanctuary, a picture that this revelation is about to be brought forth here as it says the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God. Verse 8, and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Filled with smoke from the glory of his power. This is tabernacle language. This is temple language. This is the picture that we see in the tabernacle and temple when God is about to give a a revelation. When God is about to bring something forth. And and that's what's about to happen here. This picture of smoke filling it and his power and glory filling up the sanctuary is exactly the picture we see in Isaiah 6 with Isaiah's throne room vision and Ezekiel 10 and Ezekiel's throne room vision. How smoke and his glory, his train filled the entirety of the room, which is a, a picture of his power and might, right? So we've seen this already. But I love this little description. It says, no one could enter it until the plagues were finished. Now, what does that mean? The idea here behind the writer, what in the language that he's using here, is that there, there will be no one who can come in and dissuade God from his judgment. No one can come in and, 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 and change his mind on this matter. That there will be no place for mediation to come in there. That he has decided that this will be what the wicked of the earth receive. And there will be no one who can come in and and dissuade him otherwise. We actually see this kind of his glory actually blocking people out from other tabernacle and temple languages, right? With the tabernacle, Exodus 40, verse 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So Moses is kept from it. In other words, is what God is giving and doing cannot be interrupted. It cannot be dissuaded. It cannot be changed. God has decisively acted and there is no changing this picture of the judgment that will come upon unbelief. With the temple, 1 Kings 8, 10, and 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So we, we see this language elsewhere where the Lord's glory is so powerful, so mighty, so decisive that, that, that you can't even enter into it. Right? That it's so strong that it keeps anyone from him decisively acting, interrupting his decisive action and decision in that moment. And so what, he's, what we're seeing here in this introduction to these bold judgments is that God is decisively acting in these declarations to reveal the nature of the judgment He is going to bring against unbelief and nothing will dissuade Him from it. These, this decision is final for those who will not repent. So with that, let's look at these bowl judgments. Let's look at the first bowl. Verses 1-2 through two of chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go 
and pour out on the earth a picture of Christ's voice going forth and declaring them now is the time. The seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So what you're going to see throughout these plagues is that they mimic and match the plagues of Exodus. This one matches the sixth plague. What's also important is if you actually go back and read the trumpet judgments, it's mimicking those and paralleling those in the same way. Because the picture here, once again, is these judgments are portraying the last days, the latter days, which we are in, we have been since Christ uh, in his first advent that ushered in the latter days, the messianic age, that this is that great latter days exodus. And that these are the judgments which will bring forth that exodus. Now it's important to note that could God have just went straight to plague number 10 with Egypt? Yeah. He didn't need to do 10. But why did he do 10? For a couple reasons. One, and first and foremost, which is always the reason for the declaration of his glory. To absolutely make clear that there is only one God. The God of Israel. That's it. So first and foremost, and you could pretty much, this is a good Sunday school answer, for his glory. You'll probably never get wrong if you say that. Because it is. It's for his glory. So that, that's the first reason that he did it that way. Secondly, he extends those plagues for the saints. To show them his power. And for them to depend on him and nothing else. So he does it for our sake, for his believer's sake. But lastly, he does it as an act of mercy. Because was it just Israelites that left up out of Egypt? No. Egyptians went with them. That means that during this time, there were Egyptians who turned to the Lord. Who, who threw that turn to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, as we will talk about the nature of these judgments and what these signs represent, I can assure you that God has used these judgments countless times to draw many to himself. So, it is first and foremost for his glory, which is why he doesn't just nix it and say it's over. Secondly, it's for a revelation to his saints that they would be encouraged and hopeful and know the strength of their Lord. And lastly, it is for mercy. It is for mercy that God would suspend judgment over series as opposed to just one final blow, which he could do and be righteous in doing it. So with that picture of how these plague, this plague language is being used, let's, let's talk about what this is, right? So there are clearly, right? There are clearly those who will look to these judgments and, and the only thing that they will be able to see within them is clear, literalistic, people just going to be walking around looking like lepers, there's going to be sores, and they're just going to be all marked, and the world's just going to be falling apart here. Um, is that a viable interpretation? Yeah, it's viable, but I don't think it's consistent. And I think it's consistent with the nature of Revelation itself. That is to say that Revelation's messaging is so much more than physical. And if you just see it as physical pain, you're actually missing so much depth to it. I think this picture here, right, of 
harmful and painful sores coming upon those people who worship the beast. Notice first and foremost, who's kept from this judgment? The people of God. They're nowhere found in these. Because these judgments are not for them. Now, they may live in a world underneath the results of these judgments, but this is not judgment that they themselves will endure. Rather, the judgments that the world endures around them will just merely be means acts of discipline and sanctification for them to grow through. But it's for those who worship the beast or bore the mark of the beast and worship its image. My belief is that this picture of, of these gangrenous sores, painful, harmful sores, are pictures of the gangrenous effects of sin that eat people alive, spiritually and physically, because of their worship of the beast. In other words, those who worship the mark of the beast, the Lord ensures that their life will be marked by sin. And I can promise you, anybody of you who's been around people who've sinned long enough or who have been in a specific sin, maybe it's drug addiction or something like that, can see how it eats them alive both physically and spiritually. Not just, I mean, spiritual sores and harm are always there. But think about the torment that people face, the meaning crisis, the rise of suicide, all of these things. This is a picture of judgments that God brings upon those who will not have Him. If you want the world, He'll give you the world, but notice the world will give you, will give you destruction. The world may taste sweet, but it will give you cavities in your soul. It does it eats you alive, slowly and surely, and over time, depending on the nature of the sin itself, it will eat you alive physically as well. We've seen pictures of beautiful young people who became addicted to methamphetamines and drugs, look like walking zombies. We've seen people who are beautiful pictures as babies and young kids. We've seen pictures of mugshots when they were serial killers with the blackest eyes you could ever see. Sin will eat your life apart. I think this is the first judgment. The first bold judgment that God pours out on the earth. He said, if you want to worship the beast and you want to bear his mark, I'll make sure that you are marked out. And you will bear the marks of being eaten alive by the harmful sores of sin, spiritually and physically. I have counseled enough people apart from Christ to know they are being eaten alive. Being eaten alive. Because of the nature of sin. Listen to what the scriptures have to say about this. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Do not, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So if you're sowing after the world, what is it that the flesh will receive? Corruption. Sores. Harm. Pain. It eats you alive. Psalm 38.3. I love this psalm. So powerful. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. 
There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Sin will eat you alive. There's a reason why the Bible calls Christ the great physician. Because there's real healing that takes place when sin is removed and the power of sin is removed from a saint. That corrupting force has now been taken from you and life put into you, health put into you, eternal life put into you as opposed to corruption, which merely destroys you. Philippians 3, 18 and 19, Paul talking about false teachers of the world. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God, little g, is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Their mindset on earthly things. What does he mean by their huh? That was Philippians three eighteen and nineteen. What does he mean by their God is their belly? Their lustful appetite. What they hunger and long for in the world. They see it, I want it. And it's eating them alive. It's eating them alive. I believe this picture here, my interpretation based upon the consistency of Scripture and with this text is that this is to be seen as a far more powerful, deep, figurative picture of the gangrenous effects of sin as opposed to just merely the physical sores, right? It's so important to note that. Why? Because when we look at the Old Covenant, what did God use to foreshadow spiritual realities? He gave us physical things. Right? A physical land, a physical people, a physical temple. All of those physical realities were to be put before the eyes of the people to point them to greater spiritual ones. Which is why the whole substance of faith is that which is not seen. Not that which is. And so I believe that those Exodus plagues, those, those real physical plagues that happened to Israel, or excuse me, to Egypt, are a picture of greater and deeper spiritual realities that plague the world, the Egypt, the Babylon today. And like we've said, though, there are many times where these spiritual realities, these addictions to sin, these giving over, being given over to that sinful lifestyle, not only leads to the, the spiritual holes, but also the physical ones. True and literal physical detriment. We see then the second bowl. The second angel poured out his bowl onto the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now, we, we know this, where this plague comes from very clearly. Exodus chapter 7, Right? Moses comes, puts the staff in the water. What happens? The staff those turns into blood. And all the fish die. They're in it, right? Picture that Yahweh is greater than the Nile. Greater than this life-giving goddess that they believed in. God's greater. Physical reality. 
Once again, I think this is a, greater, a picture of a greater spiritual reality that at times and in many ways reflects itself physically. My belief here that the second bowl, the picture of the sea being turned into blood, actually portrays the bloodshed of the nations. The bloodshed of the nations that come from war, genocide, and especially the persecution of the saints. We've already seen from Scripture, we saw this last week especially, that the sea, right, in Revelation, reflects the nations. Isaiah 17, 12, Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of the nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. Revelation 17, 15, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. So in other words, in Revelation, the sea is Babylon. The nations that are, that are in rebellion to the Lord. That's so important to understand. Because the New Testament makes clear there is only one Christian nation. It's called the church. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. There's only one holy nation. Now, there are nations that can act righteously in according with the precepts of God's word. Our nation did that for a while. Tried to. Still faltered. But there is only one holy Christian nation. It's the church. It's the church. The rest of the nations are in rebellion to God. They're in rebellion to God. And the bloodshed here, that they are turned, the nations are turned to blood, is a picture of what's been happening ever since Adam and Eve bit the fruit. What's the very first thing that happens after it? Death. Their sons, Cain kills Abel. Death. And then what starts happening as men reproduce, especially the line of Cain and Tubal Cain, they start wielding swords and spears and weapons to do what? To kill each other with. God comes and wipes them out and they pick right back up with it. When God turns to seize the blood, the picture is that it is God's judgment on the world when He gives nations over to war, to murder, to killing. It's a sign of judgment upon a nation when it gives itself over to genocide. It's a sign of judgment on America when it kills 70 plus million babies. It's a sign of judgment when it enters into needless wars that are unjust and celebrates them elsewhere. And that's any nation. It was under judgment when it, when it received its economic, his major economic input off the back of human beings. It was under judgment. And the only person who I've read that actually got that right was Abraham Lincoln. Go read his second inaugural address tonight. And he'll show you the reason all this is happening is because we're under judgment. And he says something to the extent, and I'm paraphrasing, that if God should repay every drop of blood from the lash of the whip from the blood of our children, then let it be so. It's a picture of judgment. And, and where is he getting that picture from? 
Genesis chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. This is the Noahic covenant. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So anytime you willfully, volitionally take the life of an image bearer of God, I'm not talking about an act of self-defense, that's not here. We're talking about murder with intent to take an image bearer's life. The only proper, true, just response is to have your life taken. Capital punishment. Genesis 9, 5, and 6, a, 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 a prescription which flows out of the Noahic covenant is the single most important arbitrator and in clear teaching on the necessity of the death penalty. If you willfully and volitionally take an image bearer's life, God says the only true justice is to have yours taken in response. It's why we don't call people victims who willfully put their children on the altar to be sacrificed. I don't I don't I will not call them victims. I will not. There is forgiveness in Christ and redemption and repentance. I will say that. But I will not glib it off as if someone willfully puts their children up for sacrifice. They're the pro- they're, you know, it was their pro- they're the victim in it all. It's like no, they knew what they were doing. There is there is judgment for that. In those circumstances. Any nation that seeks to be a nation that is filled and fueled by bloodshed will find itself under judgment. And the picture that the world is under judgment is the fact that there's so much bloodshed. There's so much bloodshed. We we only have a fraction of it, people. There is genocide all over the world right now. Modern 21st century genocide everywhere. And what did the enlightened philosophers say? Well, if we just get rid of God, they'll stop killing each other. 20th century rolls around, the two deadliest wars in human history. Pumped on the back of modernity. There's no God. Let's create, let's become God and let's kill everybody who doesn't agree with us. That's what the world wars were. Let's use as much technology as we can to just massacre people, right? And this is a prescript within our military law, right? Use the maximal amount of force to as quickly put down the enemy as quickly as possible, as soon as possible. Right? Maximal force to eliminate the enemy in minimal time. This is not me saying anything about the nature of just war and defense and all of those things. This is me providing the nature of why wars exist to begin with. Judgment. Sin. And the nations turn to blood because they are under the judgment of God. And from the third bowl, we see that as nations war with one another and genocide happens and persecution takes place, it never stays isolated but trickles out elsewhere. Look at the third bowl judgment. The second angel, or excuse me, verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers, and the springs and water, became they became blood. 
And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Hear that? It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord, God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Here, this bowl portrays the devastating effects that trickle down and, 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 and are poured into every part of society from the nature of war and persecution and genocide and devastation that happens amongst the nations. That when wars happen, when death happens, when genocide happens, when persecution happens, everybody's affected. Now, it's easy for us here in America to go to sleep tonight and go, well, we sleep nice, we're going to be comfortable, we'll have a warm bed, we'll have all of these things, and that's great, and that's wonderful, it's a blessing, thank you, Lord. But all your food prices, gas prices, inflation rates, interest rates, all of those are being gradually affected by wars around and you know who those, those inflation costs, who they hurt the worst? The lowest class. It's those who are the most impoverished that are affected the most by economic disaster and frustration. And not only that, but it's great for us to cheer. Woo, yeah, look, go Ukraine, they're kicking their tail. That's awesome, wonderful. Until a madman over there gets tired of being embarrassed and launches a nuclear war. It's all, it's, it's all easy for us just to sleep in and think, oh, well, everything has a domino effect. Everything trickles. When wickedness happens, it trickles into other parts of the world. When, when leadership is wicked, it trickles down to every part of society. When our view of the home is wicked, it trickles out to every part of society. Wickedness infects everything. And this is the picture of, of these rivers and, 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 and streams being turned to blood. It's that when, when the sea itself, when the nations are full of bloodshed and wickedness, it's going to pour into every other part of itself. It affects everything. And this is a judgment of God. That a world given over to bloodshed will be full of economic collapse, devastation, unrest, revolutions, darkness. It will be absolutely devastating. And what did the blood in the water do in Egypt? It killed everything in the water. And what is the wages of sin? Death. Romans 6.23 and that's what, if you follow the world and you put your hope in the world and you live for the world and a world that is absolutely and overwhelmingly separated from God, you know what the only thing it can bring? Death. Death. And you know the only reason it hasn't gotten that bad completely is because of God. That this is a picture of God's judgment on a nation. But there's a beautiful aspect we talk about this, mercy, this morning called mercy. 
And God, in His common grace, there's two views of grace, right? There's common grace, which God gives to all of creation. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust, right? That's God's common grace. Every day you wake up and breathe, whether you're a believer or not, that was grace. That's common grace. Special grace is that which He gives to believers alone, His people alone. That's effectual grace, salvific grace. So you could see common grace as survival grace, Special grace as saving grace, right? So you got survival grace, saving grace. The only reason man is not as bad as he could be is God's restraining hand. But what these bold judgments show us is that as the world continues to go after idolatry and wickedness and rebel against God, God steadily moves that hand of restraint. Little by little. And nations are given over to more and more and more judgment. And that becomes really clear what happens in the fourth bowl. The fourth bowl. We read, The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Now I know what many would say about this. But I do not believe this text is talking about global warming. I don't. I don't think this is a picture of of global warming, the absolute melting down of the ice caps, the flooding of the nations. I don't think that's what's in mind here. No, I believe this portrays the gradual and universal withdrawing of God's common grace, which restrains the effects of wickedness. As God withdraws His common grace... The effects of the curse, the effects of the fall uh, will fatally intensify in such a way that its terrors will be like trying to survive in the blazing sun of the desert with no shade or living, life-giving water to escape it. And that rather than turning to God, the folly and hardness of sin will cause the wicked to run even further from the one who can bring them relief both temporally and eternally. I believe what the fourth bowl is a picture of is Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. Of God giving man over to a depraved heart. That as man continually seeks to run from God to rebel against his righteous precepts, the faster that the wickedness and judgment on that nation compounds. I'll give you an example. Look at how quick things have escalated here since Obergefell, 2015. The Obergefell decision legalized same-sex marriage. Bam! Next thing you know, and who cares about same-sex marriage anymore? Now we're letting telling kids they should get gender dysphoric surgeries. It's like, my kid can't even say spell his name. Much less go get a gender reassignment surgery. But you have places like Vanderbilt, Boston Medical, Harvard Medical that are promoting these things. We're only seven years removed. Look at how fast the society has compounded with interest under God's judgment. As it's just being given over and over to more wicked ideas that I'm sure many of you could never have imagined you see in your life. I'm 30 years old and there's things I go, what in the world? Take me back to 95. Right? What's going on? 
right? But still, that's, that's, I don't just say that's like the earliest I can remember. But, uh, but nevertheless, the music was really good then. I'll say that, much better than now. But think about how fast it compounds. And that's what happens as, as God removes his restraining hand of justice that, that maintains a society that keeps it from going into complete collapse. And what happens is, is before you know it, you know, in a society, you used to have your kind of crazy things, but you could easily escape from it. But as it compounds in wickedness, you can't go anywhere from it. It's like living in a desert with the blazing sun of God's judgment everywhere just beating down on the nation and you can't get away from it. It's on your news stream. It's in your schools. It's in your courthouses. It's in your political offices. Does it sound familiar? That's what this bold judgment pictures. And we've seen that happening throughout the ages since Christ came. We saw it with Rome. We've seen it with France. We've seen it with all the Western world right now. We're seeing it with America. This happens over and over again. And you know what happens as these things, these little cycles go round and round? Is God, in his ultimate picture of judgment within these five bowls, he brings nations to nothing. He brings nations to nothing. Ask Rome. Ask Europe's version of Christendom. Ask the German Empire. Ask what happens when you want to start turning away from God. It's just a matter of time. And as much as we like to think we've been around forever, America's really young. We're really young in the course of history. And we are making a very quick exit from the sea. If we continue in the path that we're headed. Because more and more our society is like that of a blazing sun where God's judgment is just seen everywhere. And we can't escape it. Can't even watch, tel- can't watch a sports game now because the commercial's going to have something in it. Worst of all, even church houses have it. Even church houses have it now. They're not churches. But they claim to be. This is the scorching sun that you can't escape from in a nation under judgment. It's just everywhere. It's everywhere. Man was made to know and be in relationship with God. That's what separated him from the beast of the earth. And when man rebels from his image and relationship with God, all he can be is a beast. All he can be is a beast. If you refuse to know God, God will give you over to the rest of the world and you will be a beast. That's the whole message of Nebuchadnezzar. If you rebel against God, you'll just be like the rest of the earth. You'll be a beast of the earth. And that's what we see in the rage of men. Finally, the fifth bowl. Real quickly here. But this is probably the one of the most clearest that we can see. Verse 10, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. We talked about the beastly system back when we preached on Revelation 13. And we talked about how the world system, even though there is going to be a future antichrist, there have been many antichrists, John says, plural. 
right? There will be a future leader or, or system, whatever that may be, that, that seeks to use and turn the world against God and that, that final picture which we'll see in the sixth bowl. But nevertheless, the system of whole, at whole of the world is a beastly system. It's under the rule of the dragon, of the beast. It goes after the beast. And what this picture here is in the fifth bowl is that as another result of God's withdrawing His common grace is that God now removes the ability for unbelieving rulers to govern effectively over the realm of humanity. That this inevitably leads to the collapse of society and with that comes darkness and terror. I love what John Calvin wrote. He wrote, quote, When God wants to judge a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. End quote. When God wants to judge a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. Why? Because righteousness exalts a nation. To do right things, if you have righteous leaders, it will uplift your people. It will move them towards right things. But if a nation wants wickedness, if it wants depravity, God will make sure it's solidified by giving them wicked rulers who will champion the causes of wickedness. When a God wants to judge a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. You see, part of God's restraining hand over nations was governing authorities. That was the way God intended to, to provide cover in this world and protection. This is what Romans 13 talks about, right? Real quickly, Romans 13, 1 through 5. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers, now remember, this is what rulers are supposed to be. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So Paul lays out here the threefold picture of what righteous government was supposed to look like. Right? Government was to protect that which, or excuse me, promote that which is good. So what God says is good, the government should say this is how we should live and act. Secondly, it is to punish what is evil. If you do wrong, it is God's sword of a vengeance. God gives the nation, God gives the state authority to rightfully punish and provide justice to wickedness. So, promote good, punish evil, and finally, to protect the people. Those are the threefold judgments. That's, if you say, what's government's purpose? Promote good, punish evil, protect people. That's it. Nothing else. That's it. We totally turn that on its head. So now, the government promotes what's evil, punishes what's good, and who cares about the people? Let's just rob from them. Let's rob from them to protect ourselves. And that's what it's become. And so when God 
wishes to judge a nation, he takes away that righteous rule of Romans 13 and he gives wicked rulers. And not only does he give wicked rulers, but the clearest picture of judgment on a nation is when a nation chooses wicked rulers. Because what God does then is he's giving them an actual frame of their own heart to put before them. So when you see the folly on your television screen, what God's saying is, this is just a reflection of your heart, country. This is a reflection of what you desire. Foolishness. Proverbs 29.2 When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, people groan. This is the fifth bowl. And we've seen wicked rulers be raised up throughout history and be the, be the ultimate decimation of a nation. At this time, that wicked ruler, that throne of the beast, for those who are reading this at the original writing, was Nero. For us today, it could be many others. The thing about it is, though, whether it's Nero or anybody else leading in this worldly system, it's all a part of the throne of the beast. If they seek to rule a separated from the God of heaven. If you will not rule with the God of heaven in your heart and leading your precepts and principles, then you're connected to the throne of the beast and you will lead your nation to darkness. These are these five bold judgments that are recycling and repeating throughout the age. And as we see a world that is giving itself over more and more to wickedness, we see these judgments happening more and more everywhere. And they will continue to happen until the culmination of the age when God fully divides humanity with separating of the wheat of the chairs and that separation will come through the natural means of God taking that wicked world, gathering them together, and now bringing them with full force against his church. And it will look as if they are going to win. But then he will show up. And that's what we'll look at next week.